0: This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello, once again. This is Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. Before we go any further, please take note, at the time of this recording, the total number of gun-violent deaths this year in America is 18,341. The total number of mass shootings so far in 2022 is 233. The number of mass murders, 12. The number of children up to the age of 11 killed so far this year by guns is 152. The number of teens killed, 543. Unintentional shootings, 620. Murder are suicide incidents 277 and as you listen for the next hour statistics say at least one person will die from a gunshot. Coming up later in the show a gorgeous venture into modern jazz recorded live at Lazy Bones Club in Sydney Australia first. He's a frequent guest at Life Elsewhere and we call upon Benoit Campmark To give us an overview of some topics in the news that I think are worthwhile discussing. And the reason that I think it's worthwhile talking to Dr. Benoit Campmark is that he always has what I like to call an alternate view. Dr. Benoit Campmark, welcome back to Life Elsewhere. Pleasure being with you, Norman. Okay, I've given you a list of topics. I'm just going to run through them quickly for my listeners. I want to talk about Putin, Putin's war. Is it news anymore to the rest of the world? Number two, got to talk about this, America's gun fetish. Has it damaged and will it damage America's standing and the rest of the world? Number three, the big divide, which the gun fetish comes into this, the big divide in America Is it broken forever? Number four, the economy. Is it manufactured by greedy corporations? Number five, the Depp Heard trial. It's been reported around the world. The social media rushed to judgment. Lurid details as entertainment. And number six, 70 years on the throne. Her Royal Highness's platinum jubilee this weekend. So is this the end of the royalty in England? When Charles ascends the throne, what can we expect? Are they going to go the way of other European monarchs? Those are the questions. Those are the topics. Let's start with number one, Benoit, because it does seem to me, with all the other things that have been going on, that the, the story, the news headlines of Putin's war in Ukraine has almost become a footnote. Is it news anymore to the rest of the world?
1: Well, Norman, I think if if you were to recall, and I think your listeners would probably recall the same thing, uh, these particular conflicts, the longer they go on for, however grave and shocking they might seem initially, become part of the fabric. You know, they become part of the news cycle. As you say, they become part of the footnote and so on. Um, And the reality of it is, is that the conflict is now shifting towards the areas that Russia originally had an interest in which are, of course, the areas in the Donbass, um, Luhansk, Donetsk, these particular areas. So after the initially grand sweep in and the dramatic invasion of Ukraine proper by the Russian army, they're now uh, essentially redeploying their interests in particular savage way, a particularly um, brutal way, in, um, in these eastern environs, which they do claim essentially as... Um, free republics. And uh, Putin has said as much, you know, the the dominant Russian presence there, the Russian sympathy and so on, which is not to say that all Ukrainians there are sympathetic towards Russia. It's simply the context of uh, this perception that Putin has nursed for a long time. So as these things happen, people settle into a kind of routine. It's like the Syrian conflict. When the Syrian war um, started to you know, first started and there were these particular instances of extraordinary brutality um, in in terms of uh, be it the Assad regime, be it, of course, also the um, opposing Free Syrian Army and a range of jihadi groups, there was a lot of coverage about uh, the use of, say, chemical weapons, the use of particular forms of warfare, Um, talk by President Obama, if you remember, about red lines, Talk, uh, and of course, when President Trump came in, he, he used the US military a couple of times to launch missile strikes in um, claiming that uh, the Assad regime had used uh, chemical weapons. So when we see it in that context, sadly, war becomes uh, normalized after a while, and people tend to forget perhaps the broader sense of it. But one thing is for sure, the war in Ukraine is having global consequences economically in terms of energy prices, the price of living. Um, you know, our daily lives are affected by that conflict. And that's something we can't get away from. Yes. Is it
0: going to continue? Uh, I, I guess a lot of the experts, a lot of people are saying that the, the end is not in sight for a long time.
1: Yes, I, I think it's very, we're in a very dangerous phase at the moment, because the question is precisely that. It's the big question about how. Long continues, and it really does depend on which side wants to give, and that's the big problem. Mm. Now, when you have members of Congress uh, thinking that this can be won in favor of Ukraine, um, and this, of course, encourages the deployment and um, of greater numbers of material and and uh, military equipment to Ukraine, and this has become essentially a proxy war on behalf of, say, by the United States and its allies to bloody Putin's nose. That's essentially the language that's being used. Yeah. And, and, and when people start talking about definite victory in these kinds of situations, that's dangerous too, be it, say, from the Russian perspective or be it the Ukrainian perspective. This means, of course, and we saw this uh, in, in history when language is used such as terms such as unconditional surrender and so forth, you know, then it means that people will essentially fight to the finish. Yes, and uh, that will be that. That will mean, of course, more devastation, more casualties, and so on. So, uh, it's becoming increasingly bloody, and the longer it continues, it's going to, of course, uh, uh, bleed both countries. Russia has, of course, greater capacity um, to absorb it, but uh, it's it's coming at a huge cost as well. This particular campaign. There's a lot to unravel
0: here. There's a lot of other questions involved in this topic. Two, I'd like to touch on very, very quickly, and then we can get to our other subjects. Is there, is there truth to the story that Putin has terminal cancer?
1: Yes, you have to realize that, and uh, first of all, I'll simply say that I, I have no way, I don't yeah. have some kind of secret connection right. Uh, you know, to the Kremlin that might sort of reveal this, whether he does mm. or does not. But you have to remember, I always look at it this way, that uh, whenever a, a particular leader is uh, tarred with the brush of uh, despotism or uh, perceived lunacy or perceived instability, there will always be suggestions that there is some illness. This, this, And remember, let's not forget the speculation about Trump's mental state and his state of health for stages yes. during the time he was in office, Closer. Yes to home in the united states uh so whenever there's a leader of a certain type there will always be some speculation about whether that person in fact is even alive uh, this was of course the case for a long time uh be it um you know gaddafi uh, right. be it um uh, uh individuals like that who have doubles who have in, you know who obviously specialize in the art of deception and propaganda obviously they this can be taken to mean that the person might be ill and so on and so forth. So I don't put much stock in that. I mean, he could very well be, but uh, that doesn't necessarily uh, make much of a, of a difference in the meantime. I know people have speculated with cancer is one. I know one or line of thinking is that he has Parkinson's. Uh, ah, yes. So, people have been trying to sort of speculate uh, when they've seen his hands and to see whether there's a bit of a shaking movement there and so on. Uh, right. So, there's a lot of speculation. The, the, the feel of pathologizing leaders and the obsession as to what illnesses they have is a rich, has a long, rich, and uh, uh, in some cases, distorting history.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I, I just very, very quickly, um, this ties in very much with the references you just made a coup behind the curtain somewhere? Is that possible?
1: Well, the way the system works uh, in, in terms of Putin's approach to governance and power and the way he's consolidated his rule into this kind of uh, imperial government mm. means, of course, as with previous imperial governments, one is prone to being deposed or worse. Uh, and so once the, you know, the big power structure, as it were, um, uh, if you have situations where you are stamping on people um, and when you are, of course, placing your mark upon them and when you are holding people in check and when you're imprisoning dissidents and when you are uh, the shadowy hand behind assassinations to consolidate power and so on, you will have to expect that somewhere along the line you might get your comeuppance. Yes. And one, one of the ways that this can happen, of course, if with the conflict in Ukraine, it hasn't gone exactly according to plan, um, it will depend, as I said, on how much uh, Russia can absorb and what tolerance it has in terms of its uh, losses. But the fact is, the Ukraine gambit risks, of course, creating the situation that Putin would have wanted to avoid, which is namely an instance when you know he might himself be uh, you know outmaneuvered by opponents. Now, it's not obvious, of course, on the surface who these might be because he has made sure to stack the deck. Uh, and made sure to fill the ranks with the, his loyalists. But by the same token, if they see a chance for power, if they see a chance to seize power, there's nothing stopping individuals in the appropriate circumstances from doing so. So Putin, yeah. of course, is constantly, I'm sure, these days uh, looking over his shoulder um, and looking for successes that can justify his continued rule. Yes.
0: Okay. Okay. As I said, there's so much we could go into there. We could do a whole program on that. But let's move on to topic number two. This is a a topic that I've discussed on talk radio for, gosh, for 30 years or more. And in the last 10 years or so, I've just given up on talking about it because it just does not seem that I can talk to anybody rationally. I can talk rationally, but it doesn't seem the conversation goes anywhere when you talk about America's gun fetish. It's crazy, as you know, but there's another aspect to this, and that's the rest of the world. I talk to people all around the world who say to me, "What in the? what's going on in America? What is it? So is this damaging America's standing in the world? over and above all the other things that have damaged America's reputation. But guns and, and, and the fetish for guns seems to be so
1: overwhelmingly ludicrous. Your thoughts? Well, Norman, you raise a very interesting point regarding this, the perception of the U.S. outside, of course, the yeah. United States. Now, you have to remember that there the U.S. does have a very uh, uh, large group of uh, intellectual devotees and followers and believers that it still maintains this notion of the idea. The idea of America is a grand thing, yeah. uh, whereas other countries have long since, uh, you know, not not adopted a mundane lifestyle or... They've gone along with the humdrum of life, uh, making money and uh, you know developing technology and trying to get on with living. Whereas in the US, it's still rife with huge debates and problems associated with things such as guns, such as abortion, yes, such as these key issues that are fault lines in the country. And <clears throat> I think the the way to see it is that well when we talk about external perceptions i don't i i think it's easy to make fun of the united states and it's of course the butt of many jokes it's about a certain uh you know um there's a certain latent anti-americanism for example in european in the european intelligentsia uh you know these what are these hicks doing with their guns and so on yes but a lot of it is based also on perhaps just not understanding a specific component of American history, its evolution, and so on. Guns in the States, it's like dealing with capital punishment. It's like uh, dealing with these seemingly barbaric practices of the early republic where debates are being held over what constitutes freedom, autonomy, and being free of the state. And guns are sort of a cover. It sounds like an old-fashioned idea, but guns in many ways are like a cover for political and and electoral impotence and you know, one doesn't really have much but well, one can do something with a gun but one can't do very much with the ballot box for example yes um, and and it's a kind of a way of substitution to have guns as a expression of one's worth um, so there are many people of course with their semi-automatics who won't necessarily resolve a dispute with a neighbor in a bloody way but the problem is that in the U.S. there's this huge um, speaking of pathologies, I you know, spoke about pathologizing de- despots and leaders before, but the condition of gun control is itself a pathology. It's pathologized by the context of who would have guns like this. Is it a case of medical illness? The NRA, of course, released a statement, albeit just a few lines, before promoting its huge gun fest, Memorial Weekend, of course, in Houston, said that um, we of course uh, abhor the violence in Uvalde and we of course don't condone it Um, but the fact is it was just one deranged shooter yes end of story leave us alone leave our guns alone Um, you know tackle tackle the the psychopaths and the disturbed human don't tackle the gun right Um, so that's and that's the perception that tends to run here but in terms of whether it makes much of a difference, I don't think in the broader scheme of things, you know, um, other than the, the normal prejudices and assumptions people outside the U.S. have. I, I think there was a nice instance of this, this particular behavior, and this wasn't with guns, this was to do with the elections. Yeah. You know, when, when, when Americans do their ritual, when they travel outside and they, could, they apologize for their president. So, yes. uh, you know, and, this, and so this, this happened, of course, with George W. Bush, um, and this, of course, happened with Trump, but uh, with uh, in the 2004 elections, when, of course, uh, uh, George W. Bush was reelected. The Guardian, if you remember, um, had made a, a, a very a unfortunate intervention in the US election by essentially writing a very large note, trying to encourage individuals to vote against Bush. And the response was furious and ferocious. I think there was one. I still remember one respondent, um, you know, saying, "Why don't you stick to your shitty little country yes. for the requirements?" <laughs> and why don't you brush your teeth, you bastards? Yes, 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 yes. yeah, uh, and uh, you know. We have our elections process and electoral process. We're not going to question yours. How about you just uh, let us deal with stuff? And, yeah. and I think so. And there is ultimately, of course, uh, the the American exceptionalist streak, at least the belief in their own concept, overcomes a lot of these issues as to what people think outside the U.S. And I think ultimately, yes. um, if people are even aware of it, they don't really care, to be honest.
0: <laughs> Thank you for that. Let's go on to topic number two. Let me remind my listeners I'm talking to Dr. Benoit Campmark. He's a senior lecturer in the School of Global, Urban, and Social Studies at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia, which means he's talking to me in the early morning, and I'm talking to him late at night. my time, so it's, it's wonderful that we can do this over Zoom. Next topic, the big divide in America. It really does seem, for again, looking from the outside, and even being right here in the US of A, that America is broken. It, it, it just seems like it's it's just it's fractured apart. And I'm wondering, is it broken forever, or will, for instance, if another Trumpian person becomes president and then takes on the mantle of dictator? would that bring america together and ah, i'm being well, serious i know i see you i see you sort of smirking uh, there no no no. I am, i'm not <laughs> I,
1: I, 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 certainly it's something no it's, it's a very valid question but, uh, yeah. because it's a question that was posed in the 18th century this was this very question uh albeit in the form of that time was posed of course by the founding fathers and by the drafters of the constitution what is the political system that would be most appropriate for the new republic or for the new state uh in response you know having of course uh, detached itself uh, from uh, mother england as it were and from the tyrant george uh the point that's important here to remember is that in the design and this is why i always like uh, gently correcting my um my american friends about the understanding of u.s political history is that the First of all, it's not a democracy what the U.S. has. And as as much as it's like, as those like to advertise it as such, it is not, it is a republic. And the reason why it's a republic is precisely because the founding fathers were very keen to make sure that it was not going to be a democracy. They took a stance against monarchy. They took a stance against democracy. So they came up with this uh, brilliant, albeit cynical idea or model known as a republic. So it is more correctly to... And done to say the U.S. Republic rather than the U.S. democracy. That's that's the first premise. And the second premise is that in that design, all the safeguards are meant to be put in place to make sure that there is no one demagogue that will ever come and, and become truly all-conquering and despotic. Attempts have been arguably made, and you can argue, of course, during Nixon's time in office it mm-hmm. became the imperial presidency. Some have argued, I don't think, um, as convincingly as they think. Uh, that Trump also is trying to do the same thing. Trump has a sort of anarchic approach to consolidating power, so you couldn't really claim it was consolidation. Yes, it was corrupt, but I don't think it was quite in the imperial mold, as some people would like to think. And all through the way, even during these times, there there were mechanisms in place to ensure that such a figure would not be able to get away, if you like, would not be able to consolidate things too much further. And the reason is that the founding fathers had this notion of factions and all factions would be held in check by others. So how do you do that? You make sure you have a very strong separation of powers doctrine, and you make sure you maintain this particular division. The judiciary, a strong Supreme Court, a strong Congress to make laws, um, and then the executive itself. So in all of this, getting back to the point of your question about division, America thrives in division. See, one of the things that one has to remember is that even though the argument is always when it comes to elections, what is or who will be the figure to unite us? In a perverse sort of way, the way America has developed the way the United States more specifically has developed is through friction, is through the great debates about slavery, the great debates about union or disunion, the great debates about abortion, the great debates about guns, the great deba- debates about, you know, what, where, where do we fit the idea of the vote? And in that particular context, there have always been these fault lines and we see them today. And this is pre-Trump. This is something that happened before the various identity movements, uh, the various uh, 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 culture wars. We're talking about uh, the the estranged interior, the flyover of the United States where only the East Coast and the West Coast seem to matter. You know, the the division between blue, blue cities, red interiors and so on. And of course, the division between North and South, the Bible Belt South, the uh, industrialized North, that has been there, of course, for decades. But in terms of whether it's divided, of course it is, and it will continue to be. And I don't see that necessarily being overcome. I will say that just as what happened after the civil war, there'll be a a tense period of accommodation and reconstruction, that would be what would happen. There's no president yet that I can see could do that, but it will be a tense form of accommodating various factions to the best of the ability of that president. But the reality is that the U.S. is ungovernable. You know, it has become huge. The original idea of the U.S. was essentially an agrarian uh, class of um, aristos, uh, planter, agrarian types, who would represent the people in Jefferson's idea. Jefferson (laughs) had this notion uh, let's face it too, of slave owners. You know, despite what he wrote, he was himself also a slave owner. When yeah. they designed the Constitution, the founding fathers were also very mindful to protect their slave interests and their um, plantation interests. So the origins of the US are the origins of a plantation humanry, if you like. Um, and this has dramatically changed and become the US is now this extraordinary uh, combination of forces and a hyper technology oriented, but also very religious. So there are various fundamentalisms at play in the US that also mark these divisions too. Um, You know, various forms of faith, faith in the internet, faith in new technologies of conquest, but also, of course, a belief that the world was created in seven days.
0: Yes. Once again, thank you so much for that. A wonderful, uh, a wonderful opinion. And it ties in very nicely with my next question my next topic and i'm going to explain the 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 topic is the economy is it manufactured by greedy corporations hold that thought for a moment and this is an absolute true story i was talking with somebody early on today i was i was out of the studio i was at a had a meeting And the topic of gas prices came up because I had to drive to a meeting. I had to drive about 50 miles to a meeting. And one of the people that I was talking to said, wow, how much did you pay for gas? And I said, it was close to $6 a gallon. And this person said, well, you know what's going on, don't you? And I, okay, I'm waiting for it. And he said, it's Elon Musk. I said, what? He said, "Elon Musk, it's all Elon Musk. He wants electric cars. He wants to take over with electric cars. He's making it. He's." I was like, "I, I was like, oh please," and but it did make me think, and this is why I'm asking you the question: Is there something going on that we're not aware of? Our corporate, why is gas so expensive in the United States compared to what we were paying? Not compared to the rest of the world, of course. And why is is we go to the supermarket and buy a gallon of milk? It's like almost a dollar more than it was maybe two months ago. There's all kinds of things, and people every day are, are complaining about it. And of course, Biden is getting the blame, or the Democrats are getting the blame. So going back to the question, the economy is it is it manufactured? Are corporations greedy and just gouging people? And of course is elon musk really behind everything
1: yes well uh, on the first point um it just let's get to musk first because this is yes. an interesting point and reflecting yeah. on um, this particular uh, anecdote of yours which is interesting and and i've certainly heard that too well he's become of course the uh, the cartoon villain uh musk uh, uh, across the spectrum it's interesting how many people uh, be it yeah, you know, he is he is liked by certain members for example You know, by libertarians because of his attempt to acquire Twitter and then he's trying to reform Twitter as a free speech advocate and so on. But in other ways, he's seen as a tyrant. Um, This, uh, you know, electric car tyrant who's determined to put other, you know, other good businesses out, (laughs) you know, out of order, as it were. But I would say that Musk is a convenient target for this. You have to see it in a broader sense about various shocks that have taken place to the global economy and uh, the. The rise in prices was already happening in the context of all the stimulus that was being put into the economy, economies, the EU, for example, the US and Australia, we saw that too. There were these stimulus packages, uh, for example, to uh, cover people who had lost their jobs, encourage people to stay at home to observe pandemic health orders. And this, of course, meant that individuals suddenly, and this was not necessarily the intended effect of these stimulus packages, but what it did was it created a reserve that would eventually lead to overheating in the economy because money was suddenly available in, in quantities that perhaps many individuals didn't expect they would have. Companies I know in Australia suddenly realized uh, they had a windfall. So because there was the, the JobKeeper scheme, as they called it here, where federal money, so um, tax money, the taxpayers' money was funneled into businesses. Many of them didn't need it, by the way. A good number didn't. The result was huge piles of cash that were not spent because there was nothing to spend it on <laughs> during the course of the uh, these pa- you know, the pandemic years, the last couple of years. But the moment the lockdowns were lifted, the moment people started to move around, started to travel, money started being dispersed into the economy. And that creates, of course, uh, aggregate price rise, otherwise known as inflation. So one of the big reasons why that was occurring, that's even before the Ukraine conflict was, and Biden has had to deal with that, of course, is that uh, certainly in the US economy, it's been overheated. There's a lot of cash going around stimulating the economy. Um, and that's one of the primary drivers. And then of course, when it comes to matters such as gas and so on, this, what hasn't helped is that, uh, is the conflict in Ukraine, because during conflicts like that, prices in petrol and gas tend to rise. You see that also in, in Australia. you see that through Asia, you see that across the board so now, as to the bad faith of corporations and the behavior, I'm reminded of the you know the remarks made by the great Scottish economist Adam Smith, who does say in the Wealth of nations there's this wonderful uh, statement he makes when two businessmen meet, and he says that when one businessman meets another their sole purpose is to cause a conspiracy to raise prices. <laughs> so, yes. And, and, yes. So, and it's a very interesting point that you tend to see prices rise, of course, as um, you know, often call it cartel behavior, uh, call it um, trying to reign, you know, oligopolistic behavior to use that, that long-winded word. I like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 so we're, we're essentially in the US, of course, is marked by this because the US is characterized by, you know, huge corporations that have controls. And even though there's an, you know, there's the occasional antitrust action. The yes. fact of the matter remains that in the US, there's a lot of cartel behavior going on in terms of pricing. Um, and this, this is also something you see in other countries as well. So um, exploitation of this, absolutely. I, I can tell you my personal story, seeing prices here, that the moment the announcement of the consumer price index was made within hours. The supermarket chains here had risen the price. There's no reason why they should have done it for pre-existing stock. This is stock Yes, already yes. Yeah. What did they do? So it wasn't affected in that same way, but what did they do? They raised it by, you know, something like 50%, in some cases, 100%. Um, and that, that, that's not 5.5%. You right. know, my, 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 my maths is not necessarily grand, but I think on that point, they're raising it by <laughs> but doubling the prices uh, overnight is a bit of an odd thing to do. And uh, one of the things that's interesting is that this does suggest exactly um, price gouging as a practice. And you know, when they do raise prices to exploit the moment, because crisis is a chance to exploit, uh, you know, in terms of finance and so on, it's a good opportunity to make money too.
0: Yes, yes. Once again... Thank you for a terrific answer. We've got two more topics I want to talk about. I want to talk about the depp Heard trial. And although this may seem very trivial, I think it's very important to talk about this. And I want to talk about Her Royal Highness the Queen. Once again, if you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. Benoit Campmark, a frequent contributor to Life Elsewhere, where I ask him questions about all kinds of issues. Dr. Benoit Campmark is a senior lecturer in the School of Global, Urban and Social Studies at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. So, in my list of subjects, my topics, Benoit, let's now go to one that has Everybody seems to have an opinion on, even if you haven't been following it. But I've got some opinions about it, but it's not really to do with the outcome. It's to do with the the fact that the lurid details of the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial became worldwide entertainment. And it just. I, I just question that. It seems to me that we live, of course, as we know, in strange times, but probably lurid details aren't that strange in the course of history, are they?
1: No, they're not. Uh, you know, When we think about these kind of events, the the fact of the matter is that gossip and celebrity-type figures, notorious figures, will always command a degree of interest. And, of course, the... The modern celebrity, in a, in a way, is a bit like, even though it's not quite in the same way, but imagine um, the previous associations with uh, you know, popular saints or popular figures, uh, mythical figures and so on. The modern celebrity has become this kind of mythical figure that distracts people's attention, uh, that creates um, huge armies of followers and fans in this particular case here with uh, Deb. In particular, but also Heard had her Amber Heard had, has her following. So what has happened is that people have focused on the outcomes of these individuals as if they have an individual interest, a personal interest. Which yes, yes. So to me, it's of course quite um, well. First of all, I, in some ways, I do find it a bit sad, actually. Yes. But in other ways, uh, there is also the phenomenon at stake here and at work, which is this association of figures with the personal plight of an individual. Let's not forget the orgy of um, uh, squelchy, commemorative, uh, saccharine nonsense that came out in response to the death of uh, Diana. Yes. And the notion of that oxymoronic construction of the people's princess was always a very odd one. Yes, because of course, the whole point is that she's not part of the people. She wasn't. This is this is an aristocratic institution, an institution, a monarchical institution, which, of course, we're about to talk to afterwards. when We talk (laughs) about the Queen. But the interesting thing about this is the association, the personal association of an individual with such figures and how they can identify with them. And that is a very striking aspect that has, of course, come through with this case. But what is also fascinating for me, certainly looking at it is, is that it, it reveals a very different approach to the legal aspect of, of um, say, the U.S. system to others in Britain and in the United, uh, sorry, in, in the United Kingdom and in Australia and in most European countries. You are not permitted cameras in the actual courtroom. So there's not that media attainment in the same way that there is in the United States. This is, again, brings one to the whole, to OJ Simpson. It reminded me of the OJ Simpson trial. Yes. The, all these details being splashed and, you know, you know, the, the, the skills of advocates rather than the actual facts, because at the end of the day, no one's interested in the facts of this case. Right. Um, the fans are not interested. They couldn't care less. Uh, what they interest because they've already decided who's guilty and who's not, who's, who's defamed and who's not. Uh, you know, the, the Depp fans base is very aggressive and very dedicated, and they were never going to, of course, accept anything contrary to their sweet, sweet Depp relative to, of course, the the demon monster <laughs> and the herd. Uh, So it, it's it, it's one of those things that's been so personalized uh, to the point where it's become a condition. Yes the social media aspects of
0: this Benoit, has also been something which in some respects is new but again going back in history we've always had we've always had so, even with the town crier you know the, the, there's always been some way to get the news and news and gossip being spread but having said that are we now living in a different time with social media and this one particularly because, for instance, as you just mentioned, with, with OJ, we didn't have social media like we do now. Mm-hmm. We, we had TV, uh, we had radio, but social media now with the, the depp Heard trial has really did play and has played an incredible part in, in just the public's understanding of just the justice system.
1: Well, yes, uh, or lack of understanding is the a case, lack of so. understanding. Yes, 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 yeah. Because, yeah. because what, what social media tends to do, of course, is create these storms um, of, you know, of irreconcilable positions, rather than actually creating a space of debate. And this is, of course, the huge problem with with how it's functioned. And I've certainly seen it close at hand when it was first seen as as this revolutionary platform or platforms uh, that would enable people to get a message out. But what it's, what has happened is that it's become very, very uh, fractious and tribalistic um, individuals with their particular views. And of course, uh, done often anonymously or done behind the safety of a keyboard or a, a phone. And it's astonishing the vitriol that then comes out with it. So even though it is, it's certainly been ratcheted up to an extraordinary degree, because when you have I think, extraordinary figures in terms of how many people have been looking at this Yeah. in, say, TikTok, for example. Or, and, and in a sense, using a platform like TikTok, in many instances, the trial is only barely referred to. It's just, you know, Depp is innocent or exactly. you know, yes. the monster, as I said. The trial is just background briefing. You know, it's, it's barely relevant. It's just that people already have their convictions. Um, but the fact that this subject matter has been viewed in some cases billions of times i mean we, we we don't talk about you know whether there's so many other things that people might be looking at you know the war in ukraine or you know concerns about uh, food prices or but what do we do we have of course this obsession with um, herd and debt, yeah and it's so it, it is of course a lot of a massive distraction by the same token it, it's not perhaps an accident that where there are times of crises and so on, then people seek distraction. And this has been a, a fabulous way of numbing your mind. Um, you know, if you look at the material that's been produced there. And I think one, one tends to also forget that they were themselves performing. Now, I know some people will say, no doubt some of your listeners will, will say this is a, a harsh assessment of it, but uh, they are actors. Yes. They are paid to act. Yes. And I, and I find it also very unfortunate that people have any kind of faith in any social messages that might come of the actors now i don't you you see the problem i think with her to mistake and this is the fundamental thing in the end i think of of a feature of this whole thing is that she appointed herself essentially a spokesperson for me too uh put herself into and injected herself into a a movement that itself had become a social media movement uh, hoping to gain some traction for the case and this is where you know, Johnny Depp pounced on it because she, you know, the very, even though his name was not mentioned in the 2018 Washington Post piece that, you know, heard did write, uh, there was enough of a suggestion about the abuse that he had been the one responsible for it, of course, and that's the reason why it went to trial. Um, but in this process, uh, it never, never entrust a social message to an actor. Because, you know, the the, the whole point of it is that, the, you know, there is a reason why in Plato's Republic, so when Plato writes about you know the you know, the concept of his re- idealized republic, there is one group of individuals he banishes from the start, and that is the actors. Yes. Uh, well said. Uh, yeah. So, so that's playing you know, out this role. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: One name came to mind for me, and and I want to move on to our to our last subjects. But one name came to my mind when I was thinking about talking to you about the Depp Heard trial and then the outcome and law and media, all the different things was Julian Assange. Here is a legal situation. Here is something that is known worldwide, and it has those that are for and those that are against. I just very briefly. Uh, am I right in thinking that this is very similar how the public perceives Julian Assange, how the public perceived the depp herd trial
1: oh well, certainly in terms of uh, the the strong allegiances and and the the fault lines uh, are certainly there and and of course Assange has been a polarizing figure for the for, during the entire time he 's published but also during the time he 's been in prison but my goodness uh, I think his defense team would have uh, killed for 10 billion views on TikTok right uh, publicizing the Assange case that's the funny thing about this is that yes if, if Assange had a follower base um, as fanatical uh, as fanatically loud and, and, and as varied and as vast as uh, the Depp fans my goodness it's uh it, it of course comes with its problems too um, you know you you do have these you know Distortions, and again we 're back to the issue about uh, the whole point of fandom is that it, it eviscerates truth i mean it 's not really dependent on whether things are factual or not yes. uh, it's dependent on loyalty and, and adoration and unqualified uh, appreciation for a particular figure and and I know you know with Assange you know he's a a complicated figure but his, his ideas have always been very sound, and, and certainly from my perspective, I've always said that his exposing atrocities, exposing malfeasance, exposing the predations of uh, the national security state have been his specialty for a long time, yeah. and this is something he is being punished for. He is being sought out for that, and the argument being made using that uh, very nasty bit of legislation, the Espionage Act, is uh, is something that should be fought. But in this context, if it had received this global exposure, because remember, many people have more or less forgotten about him you know, in the yes. common sense. I mean, yes. he is—you know—he does have a very active number of active publicists. You know, I write about his case. I others write about his case too. But you know, the New York Times has more or less forgotten about him. The uh, most Australian newspapers have forgotten about him. Although I have to say, he, he did he has received a bit of a mention of the federal election here because there is a new government now in Australia and there's a suggestion, and I think it's just a suggestion, there's no, there's no um, sign that it's going to be more than that, but the new um, Labour government here may be making mutterances about doing more about Assange than the previous Conservative coalition government. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, we'll have to see what happens there. But, yes, uh, uh, that's the perverse thing. Uh, the defense team might have, and in fact, uh, you know, the Assange team generally might have actually liked the huge publicity commanded by uh, her death trial. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. You just said something
0: which ties in very well with our next topic. 70 years on the throne. It's Her Majesty's Platinum Jubilee. It's happening as we speak this weekend. Uh, she hasn't faded away yet, but will the royals, after she is gone, and let's be fair about it, she's what ninety-three years old. How much longer will she be around? Will the British royals go the way of other European monarchs?
1: Well, she is, of course, the figure and very much associated with, uh, you know, with the British monarchy and such a you know, such an anchor, I suppose, during times. And Britain has seen huge changes during, uh, and the world, of course, during her time um, as uh, head of state. And let's not forget how many countries she's a head of state of, 14, yeah. in fact. Um, mm. It's quite remarkable when you think about it. She's the head of state of Australia, head of state of Canada. And, and it's almost as if people have, uh, even though there, there is, uh, there's always a Republican movement with some oxygen, In countries like canada and australia there doesn't seem to be you know enough oxygen to power change in that regard it's quite an interesting thing the recent election in australia it was barely an issue there is a minister that they've appointed in the new cabinet the australian government the albanese government has appointed an assistant minister responsible for dealing with the republic as a special topic but you know there there is a kind of an understanding that she has been there for so long and some people probably think longer, but of course, uh, in being in the 90s, it's we just have to accept uh, realities and so on. But the the question will, of the transition is an interesting one. What happens after she goes? Because of course, certain number of countries are expressing a desire to leave. Barbados, uh, of course, uh, uh, removed as head of state last year. Yeah, and uh, Jamaica is thinking of doing the same thing. So the old Caribbean states you know, that have been under the you know, the guidance and the control and, and head of state of, of the United Kingdom, they're thinking of going a different way and so on. So there's no doubt that change will happen. Um, and it's also, of course, the fact that with Charles, it's very hard to imagine him commanding the same degree, you know, of, of interest as uh, you know Queen Elizabeth II. It's, it's hard to imagine that. But and don't don't forget too the uh, the, the house, as it were, the house of Winters, with a terrible storms during the time that she has been monarch. She's managed to keep it together during the, the die crisis, of course, during the divorce, during these instances where the family were tearing themselves apart. Um, Fergie, uh, the, of course, recent scandals with Prince Andrew, which have yep. been very damaging to the palace. Uh, so which, which, by the way,
0: apparently he's conveniently got COVID, so won't be making an appearance this weekend.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, he, with him, it's always a matter of convenience. I think I've noticed <laughs> with, with certain <laughs> yes. matters, yes. especially when it yes. comes to making certain appearances, public or otherwise. Uh, um, but with all these challenges and so on, the institution—it uh, it is, which is an institution—and and you know whatever Republicans might say in the UK. Uh, they just never get enough traction uh, in terms of actually either abolishing or changing it and so forth. And so there will always be Republican voices, but I don't see the the house itself or the monarchy uh, not continuing. I do see that, you know, certainly um, if it's not Charles and however long he might be, certainly Prince William is very much readying, you know, in the saddle for that. So it'll, it'll continue. What forms it takes in terms of how it modernizes itself, we'll have to see. But uh, um, the fact of the matter is, uh, one thing you have to say about uh, Britain, um, the trains may not run on time, but they can certainly put up a show. Uh, <laughs> this when it is true. To jubilees yeah. and so on. And it, 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 they yeah. do. I have to say it's very impressive. And, uh, yeah. uh, you know, to, to have uh, a whole weekend and, of course, starting already uh, celebrations for that. You know, people yeah. are no doubt going to be very caught up with it.
0: Yes, I, I, I've received emails from people, uh, text messages um, saying, oh, I wish I was in England. Are you going to go? You know, <laughs> because I don't know. Which, which reminds me, that, to just remind my listeners, that if you ever go to Australia for the first time, the Queen's picture is pretty much everywhere. People's homes have the Queen's picture. You go to somebody's office and there's the Queen's picture. You go to a pub, there's the Queen's picture. I mean, the Queen
1: is very big in Australia. Absolutely. The uh, It's worth noting that in the 90s, there was a referendum that was held uh, as to whether Australia would become a republic. Uh, that referendum, uh, so the re- republican side was uh, run by or led by Australia's future prime minister Malcolm Turnbull and I would yeah. have to say he did a a very poor job of advertising the republican model because what of the republic model because what happened was the constitutionalists the constitutional monarchists uh, simply said the onus is on you to show us why we need to change and uh, that onus was not discharged very well and very unfortunately well, yeah. when it went to the referendum Um, you know, the options provided were were very bland and not necessarily very convincing of any change. Well, if you're going to make us vote for essentially a non-solution that will change very little, why should we change? And so the Republican movement was miraculously or stunningly defeated um, in the referendum. And it was quite remarkable, actually. And and since then, it's really been a very hard thing to resurrect. Individuals, um, do uh, associate a lot with the Queen. And I think that's, and that raises that question you said early on about the fact that she has been here for so long and, and she's such a distinct face. And as you say, her face is everywhere. Her portrait is everywhere. Yes. In every town hall you go to, you see it. And in, every, in, in government buildings across the board, you see that. But once she, she departs, as it were, will that commanding or staying power continue in a country like Australia? It's an open question, but uh, we'll have to see. But Australians, it, I'm very surprised by how many monarchists there are in the country. That The monarchist movement has been very strong here for a very long time. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. Benoit, it is always just absolutely marvellous talking to you. I really enjoy getting your inputs. Uh, we have been talking to the one and only Dr. Benoit Campmark. He is in Melbourne, Australia, where he teaches at RMIT University. Benoit, thank you so much for joining us once again at Life Elsewhere. It's a pleasure, Norman. Anytime. As always, a big round of applause to Dr. Benoit Campmark for his contribution to Life Elsewhere. Do make sure you check out Benoit's articles for Counterpunch. The link is up at LifeElsewhere.co. Marrickville is a suburb in the inner west of Sydney, Australia. Now, this is where you'll find the legendary restaurants and bar, Lazy Bones. This is also the venue for some very cool jazz. Here, then, is a cut from a new live recording, Lazy Bones by Bentley. It features Mike Bentley on drums, edits, mixing and mastering, Matthew Thompson on lead keys and Daniel Plinaire on synths. This is a fully improvised recording, certainly one of the very best I've heard in a long time. The cut you here is been a while, which will take us up to the closing credits. Till next time, be well, be safe, and as always, you're advised to be nice. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.com. Dot co. That's C O.